We do appreciate everyone's presence this morning. We're glad for uh, the presence of each individual who's here. You may be a regular member here at Oak Mountain, or you may be visiting, but we are really appreciative that you're here. Uh, I appreciate those who have led us in our worship today, uh, those who have led the singing or done the readings, some of the difficult readings, but have done very well. All, all, I think all of those, all of the men who have done these readings through these early chapters of First Chronicles have really done exceptionally well. That's, that's difficult reading to yourself silently, much less publicly and aloud. And so I just want to uh, thank them for the good work that they've done in that, in doing that. You know, all the Bible's important. We may not understand why it's there, but it's there for a reason. It's all important. And as we read through these sections like this, we may wonder, why are we taking the time to read that, just a list of names? What's well, God's Word? That's why we're reading it. We want to uphold the, the fact that this is God's Word. We want to honor it. And so we take the time to read through it. And we hope as we study the Bible that we'll come to a better understanding as to why all those names are there. But we don't want to neglect any part of the Bible. We want to give it the due honor that uh, it deserves. And so that's why we do that. Anyway, let's think about the lesson tonight. I want to kind of take your attention back to the upper room. Jesus is in that upper room with his apostles. This is the night before he's going to be crucified. And so he tells them, I've been longing, I've had a strong desire to meet with you on this night for this particular Passover. And of course, the Passover was an important uh, occasion in the Jewish calendar and the Jewish history. It sort of uh, commemorated the coming out of Egypt when the angel of the Lord passed over the Israelite houses and uh, took the lives of the firstborn among the Egyptians. And so it commemorated that. And so this was an annual event, very important in the history of Israel, very important to the Jews uh, from year to year. But this particular Passover was especially important to Jesus. Now, I don't know that the apostles understood its importance, but Jesus understood how important it was for his relationship with them and for the work that he would give them to do. You might understand or might remember that several events take place in that upper room. Uh, probably a few years ago now, I put together a, a series of lessons based on that. You know, the various things that took place in the upper room on that evening. There are several significant events within those, those few hours. For example, John chapter 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. They eat the Passover. During the Passover, Jesus takes elements from that Passover meal and institutes the Lord's Supper. He identifies Judas as his betrayer. It's on this occasion that Jesus predicts Peter's denials. He engages in a long conversation with them about the coming of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit would do for them. And so several events, several important events take place in that upper room on that evening. And after a while... Matthew and Mark tell us that they sing a hymn. And so here you have Jesus with, with this small group of men, and they sing a hymn together, and then they, they leave, they go out. And uh, they're making their way then to the Garden of Gethsemane. And so they leave the upper room, they pass through the city of Jerusalem, don't know exactly the route, but they come to the Kidron Valley, very steep ravine, 
And on the other side is the Garden of Gethsemane. And so that's where they're going once they leave uh, the upper room. Somewhere along the way, and again, we don't know exactly where this was, but somewhere along the way, maybe around the temple area somewhere, Jesus stops to pray. Now, they're going to Gethsemane, and He's going to spend the night there praying. But while He's on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, after leaving the upper room, He stops even then to pray. And we have recorded for us what really is the longest prayer of Jesus in the New Testament, John chapter 17. And so let's turn over there to John chapter 17. I want to talk about this prayer and then draw out some points from the prayer, some elements of the prayer that may help us in our prayer practices as well. You might remember back several weeks ago, we were do, trying to do that, draw out from Jesus' prayers uh, practices that he, he maintained in His prayers that might help us in our prayers as well. Sometimes referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer because in it Jesus mediates. He intercedes for His disciples in a manner similar to the way a high priest would intercede for the people. And so to intercede just simply in this case means to make an appeal to God on the behalf of someone else. And so He's interceding for them. He's appealing to God, His Father, on behalf of the disciples, on behalf of His apostles. And so He serves as a mediator between God and them as He takes up their case and expresses their interest to God on their behalf. It's interesting that later on in 1 Timothy, Paul will tell us as Christians to make intercession for one another in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. First of all then, I urge that entreaties, prayers, petitions or intercessions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. And so we're taught to intercede for each other, to appeal to God on each other's behalf. And of course, as is so often the case, Jesus shows us the way in that, doesn't He? He's, he's leading the way. He's showing us how to pray for one another. What I want to do again is look at the content of the prayer. We might not be real familiar with it. It might have been a while since we studied this particular prayer. And then we're going to draw out some features that are found in it that can help us develop more effective prayer practices. And so we're going to talk about Jesus' intercessory prayer from John chapter 17. We can divide the prayer up into three sections. It falls pretty neatly into three sections. In the first section, Jesus prays for Himself. That's verses 1 through 5. And so Jesus is concerned with Himself. Nothing wrong with praying about your own needs and your own concerns. And so Jesus does that here in the very opening part of, of this particular prayer. In the second part, verses 6 through 19, the more lengthy part, Jesus prays on behalf of the apostles. And then in the third part, Jesus prays on everyone who believes on Him through the teaching of the apostles. And that begins down in verse 20. And so that would include us, wouldn't it? We have come to believe on Jesus through the teaching of the apostles. And so Jesus prays for us, but for all people that believe on Him through their teaching. And so we're just going to go through section by section for a few minutes and talk about the content of the prayer. Verses 1 through 5, Jesus 
prays for his own concerns. And in this particular section, he makes two requests. And so in verse 1 he says, it says that Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And so Jesus asked the Father, he makes this request of the Father, Father, glorify your Son. That's my request, that you glorify your Son, so that your Son might glorify you. And so, and then the second request that he makes, a little bit later, uh, he asked the Father to glorify me. And so you see that in verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory that I had with you before the world was. Jesus says in verse 1, the hour has come. You might remember if you've studied the, the Gospel of John, there are several times in the course of the, the, the Gospel of John where it says the, His hour has not yet come. Either Jesus makes that statement about Himself, My hour has not yet come, for example, in the second chapter of John. But then sometimes John the Gospel writer says, This happened because His hour had not yet come. But now the hour has come. The hour has come for Him to be manifested to the world, in a sense, demonstrating, manifesting His true character, His true nature, fulfilling the mission that God has given Him to do. So the hour has come for me to complete this work and show the world that I am the Redeemer, that I've come to redeem them and reconcile them to God through the cross. And so the work of Christ was nearing completion. In fact, in verse 4, he speaks of his mission as has as have already been accomplished. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. And so, of course, he still has to go to the cross. That's going to happen in a few hours. But the issue is settled, isn't it? I mean, it's going to be done. So over the last three years, Christ has been fulfilling the mission that God has given him to do. The hour has come for that very last uh, element in that mission to take place. And... He's committed, of course, to, to going through it. Jesus, through, during the course of His mission, has glorified the Father. And so, glorify your Son, and as, as He has glorified the Father. And so, all through His mission, through His behavior, in His teaching, in His work to reveal the Father and bring people into fellowship with the Father, in the proper use of the authority that God gave him, namely to give people eternal life, he has responsibly demonstrated and, and manifested and glorified the Father in all that he has done. Now it's time for the Father to glorify the Son. And so he says, Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given Him, He might give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me, together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world began. Now, we might just stop to remark that this suggests, very not, and not subtly, <laughs> that... Jesus the Son was in glory with the Father before the world began. And so this particular passage is a statement affirming the eternal existence of the Son and the equality of the Son with the Father. 
I was with you in glory, with you in glory, sharing the same glory before the world began. And so Jesus makes several comments about that same thing, about being equal with the Father. John chapter 5 and verse 23, we are to honor the Son just as we honor the Father. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. In John chapter 10 and verse 30, John chapter 5, he says, My Father is working until now, and I work, making himself equal with God. And here's another statement in the Gospel of John to that effect, that he is equal with the Father in glory. And so Jesus accomplished the mission that had been given to him. He's faithfully glorified the Father on earth. Now it's time for the Father to glorify the Son. And so Jesus makes that request here at the beginning of this prayer. In the middle section, verses 6 through 19, again, Jesus prays for His apostles. And again, there are two requests that He makes. In verses 11 and 15, He prays that the Father might keep them in your name. And so look at that, verse 11. I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. And then again, verse 15. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. In verse 6, Jesus says, I've given them your word, and they have kept it. They have kept your word, and now I'm asking you to keep them. The idea is to guard them or to protect them. We saw just a moment ago that the world has hated them. And so the world is going to continue to hate them, right? And so Jesus prays to the Father that He guard them, that He protect them, that He preserve them. And, and they, they need that as they go out into the world preaching the gospel. They're going to need that security. They're going to need that protection. They're going to need the Father to keep them. He also prays that God sanctify them, down in verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. That is, make them holy. That's the idea of being sanctified. But you remember, we've talked about this on other occasions. To say that the definition of holy is to be set apart is really insufficient. It's not complete enough. It should also include to be set apart for God's use. And so that's being holy in the New Testament sense of the word, something or someone who's been set apart for God's use. And so the Son is pleading with the Father, praying to the Father, saying, set them apart for your use. Guard them, protect them, set them apart so that they'll be suitable to the work that I've given them to do. And so, how will they be sanctified? Through the word. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so, by hearing the word, receiving the word, practicing the word, being obedient to God's word, that's, that's how they'll be sanctified, set apart for God's use. And incidentally, that's the same way we're sanctified, isn't it? We are sanctified in the truth that is the truth of God's word. And so, as we learn it, as we he hear it, understand it, accept it, practice it, obey it. Now we too are sanctified, fit for the Master's use, as Paul tells Timothy. We're suitable to be used in the work of, of the gospel. So the two ideas are related, aren't they? And so they're going out into the world. The world is going to hate them. I've given them your word. They've received it and accepted it. They're going to go out and teach. 
The world is not going to be, they're going to stand up and applaud when they come to town teaching the gospel. And so keep them, protect them, preserve them. Keep them holy, keep them sanctified so that they'll be effective in doing the work. And then the third section, Jesus prays for all disciples. You see that in verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. And so that would really be all Christians, wouldn't it? And again, he makes two requests. The first one is that they may all be one. See that in verse 21, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me." And so Jesus prayed for unity among believers. Do we have unity among believers today? No, 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 we don't, no. Just to drive down the road, we'll see that those who profess faith in Christ are divided in many, many ways. And so we want to work toward that unity, strive for that unity, but uh, it's a work in progress to say, to say the least. And how are we going to be unified? We're going to be unified based on accepting the Word, putting into practice the Word. Another element in bringing about that union is found a little bit later in, in, the, in the chapter, verse 25. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I've made your name known to them, and I will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. And so I'm praying that the love that we have between us, Father and Son, might be in them. And when Christ is formed in us and we love one another the way the Father loves the Son, there can be unity in truth. But until that day, uh, we're going to have to be working toward that. And so, there's, Jesus is praying for His disciples. The other request that He makes here is that they may be with me where I am. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom You've given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which You have given me, for You loved me before the foundation of the world. So I, I desire that they may be with I, where I am. Now, a little bit earlier on this evening, John chapter 14, Jesus says, you know, I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, so you may be also. And so this is not the first time that Jesus has raised this idea that they may come and be with me where I am. And so there's the content of the prayer. And uh, hopefully that gives you a little bit of an idea of the, what Jesus includes in here. But I'll spend the rest of our time just drawing out, I'm just going to draw out three, three ideas from this particular prayer that might help us. The first one is, is this, and they're not, they're not difficult, they're, they're simple. Jesus prays before important events. And so this is, this is before the, the arrest, in just a few hours, and then He's going to be tried, and then He's going to go to the cross. Three days later, He'll be raised from the dead. Is this a critical event in not only just Jesus' life, but really in the history of the world? And so this is a very important event. Jesus is feeling stressed about it or distressed about it. He's on His way to the Garden of Gethsemane where He's going to pray even more fervently about these things. But here He stops to pray. Uh, this is uh, a very important occasion in the relationship between Him and the Apostles. And so Jesus is going to take some time to pray about it 
and pray specifically for them and those who will believe on Him through their word. There's another occasion going back to, if you go back to Luke chapter 6, on another occasion, an important occasion, we find Jesus stopping to pray, verse 12, Luke chapter 6. It was at this time he went off to the mountains to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them. And so Jesus is going to select from his disciples 12 men, and he's going to eventually give them the task of taking the gospel into the whole world. And so it's important that he gets the the right men, so to speak. And so he spends all night in prayer the night before he's going to choose these men. Just another example of how when there's an important event coming up, Jesus spends time in prayer before it happens. Now that can help us, can it? You got an important event coming up in your life, you need to spend some time in prayer about it before it gets here. And uh, we might even become, be more specific than that. You got a, a dreaded event. Now, sometimes I have dreaded events. <laughs> uh, I don't want to do that. <laughs> oh, you know, it's, it's coming next week, and oh, wow, I just, I, I'm dreading it. But it needs to be done. It's got to be done. I don't want to do it, but there's no other choice about it. You need to spend some time in prayer about that. Do you have an important decision to make? Maybe it's a career decision. Maybe you're thinking about taking a new job. Or maybe it's, you know, if I take that job, I'm going to have to relocate and things like that. You need to spend some time in prayer about it. There might be a relationship issue that you have that's important. And so you've got some important event or an important decision to make about all these things. And so you need to spend some time in prayer before it happens. Are you about to get married? Are you about to have a baby? You You need to spend some time in prayer before these important events. And what can you pray for? Well, you pray for wisdom. If you've got an important decision to make, pray for wisdom. If you've got some kind of dreaded event coming up, you can pray for strength. You can pray that God supports you, that uh, you, if it uh, might involve compromising your conviction or something like that, pray for strength, commitment, determination, all those kinds of things. Are you in school and you got a big test coming up? (laughs) You might think, oh, God's not interested in me and my, my math test or my English paper. Well, you know what, what, what Peter says? Cast all your care on him because he cares for you. He cares for you. And if this is something that's important to you and it's weighing on your mind and you're distressed about it, you need to pray about it. And it might be a, an examination, a test in school or something like that. And so spend some time in prayer about it. Jesus prays before important events. That's something that we can relate to. We all have important events that come up from time to time. Spend a little time in prayer before these events take place. Jesus makes his requests based on his relationship with God. Throughout the prayer here in John chapter 17, Jesus addresses God as Father. And so he's making his request, he's approaching God based on this father-son relationship that they have with each other. Several times throughout the the prayer, Jesus addresses God as Father. Verse 1, verse 5, verse 11, verse 21, verse 24, verse 25. We talked about this in an earlier lesson. 
We said this is highly unusual, if not unprecedented, among the Jews to address God as Father. Now they would say that God treats us as a father would treat a child, but to address Him as Father, that, that just wasn't done. Now a good illustration of that, or in support of that, go to the Psalms. There's not one psalm that begins, Father. My God, my God, yes, but Father, it's just not there. There is a psalm uh, in which uh, the coming Messiah will call upon God as my Father. But again, that's, that's unusual. That's Psalm 89, verse 26. But Jesus addresses God as Father, and He does it consistently in His prayers. Matthew 11, verses 25 through 27. Matthew 26, verse 36, in the Garden of Gethsemane. John 11, at the tomb of Lazarus. As Jesus addresses God, He always begins by calling upon God as Father. And He teaches His disciples to do the same. When you pray, say, Our Father. Our Father. Not just Father, but Our Father, who art in heaven. He goes on, uh, Jesus goes so far as to describe God as my Father. He's my Father. And of course, He draws the, the wrath of the Jews. They want to kill Him because He's making Himself equal with God. John chapter 5 and verse 18. And so Jesus has a special relationship with God. God is His Father. He is God's Son. He even honors the Father by associating with glory and uh, with uh, love and so forth. They have a special relationship. And so we need, we can learn from that. We can appeal to God based on the special relationship that we have with Him. You see, we are children of God. Not everybody is a child of God. We are children of God. And so we can approach God and appeal to God as our Father. Look at uh, uh, just a passage or two. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1 highlights this relationship that we have with God. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. Now think about the love that it takes for God to call us children of God, but, but that's exactly what we are. We are children of God. And so we can call upon God as our Father, and we can make requests of Him as a child makes requests of a loving Father. In John, uh, first, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16, here uh, Paul quotes from the Old Testament and says, these are the words of God, I will dwell in them and walk among them. They will be my God and I will be their people. Verse 17, Therefore come out from their midst, be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch anything that's unclean. I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. You shall be sons and daughters to me. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus draws upon this relationship, father or parent and child. Remember he says, Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 8, uh, or verse, uh, rather verse uh, 9, What man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, gives him a stone? Here he's drawing upon this parent-child relationship. And so what father, what loving father, when their son comes and asks for some bread, he's going to get here, here's a rock, why don't you go chew on that for a while, see, see how, how you like it. No, no loving father is going, going to do that. Not a loving father. Or if he asks for a fish, he's not going to even give him a snake, is he? You then being evil, you know, as weak as you are and as ignorant as you are, 
and yet you know to give good gifts to your own children, how much more will the infinite loving God give what is good to us, to His children? And so Christians have a special parent-child relationship with God, and we should appeal to Him as our Father, just as Jesus taught us to do. Not everybody has that relationship, though, and we need to make that point as well. Not, not everybody has that relationship. Not everybody in the world is a child of God in this, in this special relationship. Only those who have come to God through His Son, Jesus Christ, only those who have believed in Jesus Christ, only those who have committed to following Him, only those being united with Him in baptism, those are children of God, and God hears their prayers. He listens to them, especially because they are His children. One more point. Jesus makes His request based on accomplishing the work that God gave Him to do. So go back to John chapter 17, and you see that in, uh, in verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. And so, I've, I've done the work. I've accomplished the work. Now I'm coming to you, making these requests of you. And so, John chapter 17 and verse 4 illustrates that. That work included manifesting the Father's name to the apostles in verse 6. I've manifested your name to the men whom you gave me. And so Jesus teaches them and shows the divine nature and character of God to His apostles. He teaches them that. He shows them that. He shows them who God is, both in His life and in His teaching. That was His mission, and He's completed the mission. He's done. He's fulfilled that mission. He gave them the Father's Word, verse 8. For the words which you gave me, I've given to them. That's part of His work. That's part of His mission. Now, I've done that. I came here to give them your words, the words that you gave me. I gave to them. I've accomplished that. I've, I've, I've kept that mission. And, of course, He did it well. In verse 6, as we said a moment ago, they received the Word, and Jesus says they kept the Word. They came to know that Jesus was sent from God, verse 8. Um, they received the Word and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believe that you sent me. And so again, here's another aspect of His mission. And so I've completed the mission. I've done what you asked me to do. I came into the world. I fulfilled these, this work. And so now I'm asking you to grant these requests of mine. In fact, Jesus completed the mission so well on the cross, you remember the words, it, it, it's finished. And so Jesus had fulfilled His task. He'd done all the Father asked Him to do. Consequently, Jesus makes His request to the Father. Our prayers will be more effective if we're fulfilling the spiritual responsibilities that God has given us to do. We're familiar with the concept, aren't we? A parent is more likely to respond to an obedient, responsible child than to a rebellious one. Daddy, can I stay out late? It's Friday night. Our friends are getting together. We're going over to this guy's house. We're going to watch a movie, whatever. And I probably wouldn't get home to maybe 12 or 1 o'clock. Can I stay out late? Absolutely not. You're irresponsible. You have no respect for me. I try to give you some rules and do for you to buy by. You break them every chance you get. Absolutely not, you know. Well, Dad, can I stay out? You're a great child. I ask you to do something, you do it. You're home on time. You do the chores around the house, yeah? 
This time you've shown yourself to be responsible, sure. We understand the concept, don't we? I've done the work. Here's a request that I'm making for you. James tells us the fervent prayer of what kind of man avails much? The fervent prayer of a righteous man is effective. James chapter 5 and verse 16. What does Isaiah says? What does Isaiah say separates us from our God? You know, my hand is not shortened that it cannot save, my ear is not heavy that it cannot hear, but your sins have separated you from me so that I will not save and I will not hear. Now that's not to say that we've got to be flawless in order for God to hear us. That, that's not borne out in Scripture, that we have to be flawless for God to hear us when we pray. It only means that the reckless and rebellious, the scoffer and unbeliever, who finds himself in a desperate situation and suddenly wants God to respect his prayer, when he's shown no respect whatsoever to God, is not in a position, to use James' words, to expect anything from the Lord. <laughs> That's what you see on TV sometimes. Here's a guy, and he's just rebellious, he's a criminal, and he, the police are about to catch him. Oh, Lord, I'm not a praying man, but, you know. <laughs> Again, James' words, that man should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Do you want the Lord to hear and answer your prayer? Accomplish His will in your life. <laughs> That's the way Jesus appeals to the Father. I've done the work that you've given me to do. And so He appeals to the Father to hear His prayer. Well, this is probably, and I hope we, just, just simple, three simple suggestions from the prayers of Jesus that might help us and we've made some other suggestions. I want to go over those quickly. This is probably the last of these. You would think, well, you're not going to talk about the Garden of Gethsemane. Well, Gary just talked about the Garden of Gethsemane. And so, uh, covered it very well, I thought. So this is probably be the last of these. So let's just touch on some of the things that we've said along the way. Learning to pray from Jesus. What, what have we learned? Well, Jesus spends a lot of time in prayer Alone. Now he prays in the presence of other people. Probably this prayer had other people around him, I suppose. But, but Jesus would go off by himself and spend time in prayer alone. And we need to spend time in prayer alone ourselves. Jesus prayed often and regularly. And so we saw that he prayed in the morning, Mark chapter 1, verse 35. He prayed in the evening, Mark chapter 3, verse 35 and 45 and 46. Jesus would pray multiple times a, a day. And so Jesus prayed often and regularly. Jesus prayed for both his own needs and for the needs of others. And so it's not wrong to pray for our own needs. That's, that's not a selfish thing. Now, it can be a selfish thing, but not necessarily. But we also need to pray for the needs of others as well. And so we've seen that Jesus does both of those. Jesus prayed fervently. I guess the best example of that is the Garden of Gethsemane, but we should also understand that he prays, always prays fervently. It's unlikely that Jesus ever prayed simply by rote. Jesus taught his disciples to be persistent in prayer. So Luke chapter 18 and the parable of the unjust judge, we ought always to pray and never to faint. Our prayers are never inconvenient to God. You remember the story Jesus told about the man who went, had unexpected guests come in, and so at midnight he goes to his neighbor's house, and the man says, well, you know, it's, it's midnight. It's not convenient for me to, to give you anything to eat. Well, 
That's unlike God. It's one of those parables where the point is made by contrast. Our prayers are never inconvenient to God. God is always willing to listen. His ear is always open to His children. The humble, sincere prayer is eloquent and powerful with God. We're impressed with the eloquent prayer and the powerful prayer, but the story of the tax collector and the publican who go to the temple to pray illustrates, makes this point for us, the simple, sincere prayer that's offered uh, is powerful with God. That man prayed, God be merciful to me, a sinner. All right, and then Jesus prayed before important events. We talked about that tonight. Jesus made his request based on his relationship with the Father. And then Jesus made requests based on accomplishing the work the Father had given him to do. And so I think this is 10. I think I counted it. This is 10. Here's 10 suggestions drawn from the prayer practices of Jesus that may help us. If we think about them, try to incorporate them in our prayers, that may help us pray more effectively. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this opportunity to come together today and to worship, to worship you. We're so thankful, Father, that you have granted to us the opportunity to come before you, to come to you in prayer. What an amazing blessing that is, that we can speak with our Creator, the Creator of the entire universe, the eternal God, who is a Creator of all these things, and that you will hear us. Father, we come to you as your children. We express our desire for you to provide for us what we need, our daily bread, our daily provision. Father, we know that we depend upon you for these things. We're especially thankful, Father, for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, that he came into the world and shed his blood so that our sins can be forgiven and that we can be numbered among your children. Help us, Father, to take advantage of all these great blessings that you've given to us, but especially on this occasion, Father, we're mindful of the great blessing of prayer. Help us to take advantage of this. Help us to do it, Father, more fervently. Help us to do it more frequently. Help us to do it more effectively. Help us to come before you, expressing our concerns, our needs, our requests to you. And we pray, Father, that your will will always be done in all things. Our confidence is in you. Our trust is in you, that you know best for us, better than we know for ourselves. And although we make requests to you from time to time, we trust that your will will be done in our lives, and that will work together for good. So help us in all these things, Father. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, your Son. Amen. If you're here tonight, you're not a Christian.